Hi, welcome to The Pie. I'm your host, Tess Vigland. Economists are always talking about the pie, how it grows and shrinks, how it's sliced, who gets the biggest share. In this show, we're talking about the most pressing matters of the day seen through the lens of economics. The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute. And in this episode, we're exploring the economic cost of keeping schools closed during the pandemic and how societies might do it differently the next time around. Our guest is Rachel Glenister. She's an associate professor of economics in the Division of Social Science. She joined the University of Chicago after serving as chief economist at the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office and the Department for International Development in the UK. From 2004 to 2017, she served as executive director of JPAL, a center out of MIT that seeks to reduce poverty by ensuring policy is informed by scientific evidence. And she helped pioneer the use of randomized trials in development economics. She's here to talk us through the findings of a World Bank report she co-authored called Prioritizing Learning During COVID-19, The Most Effective Ways to Keep Children Learning During and Post-Pandemic. Rachel Glenister, welcome to The Pie. Thanks. Great to be here. Let's start with something uh pretty basic. We hear a lot about the impact of pandemic school closures on how children learned, how it affected things like test scores. So, you know, the ramifications on the individual. But how do you then start to quantify the economic cost of all that lost learning? Yeah, um, you know, I personally went through having kids not going through school, and there's lots of different impacts from psychological burden. But what we're trying to do here is put the economic um, impact. And the way we think about that is by looking at the economic benefits of going to school and then saying, well, we would lose those benefits from the amount of schooling that we lost. So there's been a lot of research in the past about how much more people earn as a result of going to school for one more year. And so you can make assumptions about if you miss a whole year of schooling, what would that do to future earnings? And it's not just an assumption. People have done studies in the past of when schools have been closed for other reasons, earthquakes or teacher strikes, and they've been able to show that those children have had long-term impacts um, on their wages and uh, and life outcomes. So you would imagine if... The impacts are great from teacher strikes to natural disasters that almost two-year closure must have been significant, to say the least. Yeah, I think it's going to be a huge impact on future uh, economies, on productivity, on wages. Is there a number on this? Yeah, so there's some credible estimates that it's above $10 trillion in lost future earnings and productivity as a result of school closures. $10 trillion. $10 trillion dollars. It's quite interesting that when people have looked at how much children know after these closing of schools, it's actually quite different in different countries. Some countries have seen much lower levels of learning after the pandemic than others. I think that's partly a reflection of just that schools aren't actually as effective in some schools as other in some countries than others. But there's no doubt that overall, with you know losses, as you say, of up to two years, which is much more 
than in high income countries. So low and middle income countries saw much bigger closure, much longer closures of schools, or some of them did at least. You know, Uganda and the Philippines in particular had, as you say, two years where schools just closed entirely for two years. And also, if you think of that as a percentage of how long children are in school in low and middle income countries, you know, they're not at school for as long. So that's a big mm. proportion of a child's schooling life that they lost. And what you're touching on here is talked about quite a bit in this report, which is that there is really a gulf between high income countries and the middle and low income countries in terms of that lost learning that we're talking about. Um, Can you give us a sense of that gulf? Yeah. So schools in some low and middle income countries were closed for much longer than they were in high income countries. The second big difference is that you couldn't as effectively pull off remote learning. So we know that remote learning is no substitute for uh, children being in school. There's a lot of evidence to suggest children didn't learn as much when they were in remote schooling. But if you don't have a computer, if you don't have Internet, you can't even do remote schooling. So for a lot of countries, it just wasn't even possible to we know it was hard in the US but it was impossible in many countries so it was much more of a break from school you know in low and middle income countries than it was in rich countries the third big difference is that teachers didn't get very much support in other countries to cope when children came back i think we would all argue that teachers didn't even get enough support in many high income countries But in many countries around the world, they got no support. They were just thrown back into, you know, teach as normal. But how do you teach a third grader who has missed two years of school? Like, do you teach them the third grade curriculum? Do you teach them the first grade curriculum? Like, you need a lot of support to know what to do. And again, that's been very varied. I wouldn't say all low and middle income countries have done done a bad job of it, but it's very, very mixed. And just overall, there's so much less support for teachers to cope with what is an extraordinarily difficult problem. Let's break down some specifics of what you've just been talking about. You know, as as we noted, the the learning losses are obviously being documented in, in test scores, but when you talk about some of these other losses, like the widening inequalities within education, yep. um, I was interested to see that you also talked about how it exacerbated things like food insecurity because they yep. weren't going to school to get some of their meals. Yeah. So in some parts of the world, um, the school feeding that children get when they go to school is quite important. Again, not everywhere, but for example, somewhere like India has mandatory school feeding when children go to school. And so if they don't go to school, they don't get those meals. But we also know it's important just for, you know, socialization and meeting other children and those contacts. I think a big challenge that we don't talk about enough is preschools. So again, that's not so much test scores. You learn a lot in a preschool environment, which is, you know, about socialization, about being exposed to basic concepts of maths and reading, but, you know, goes much beyond sort of test schools to a much a broader sense of cognitive development. And preschools, we know this is a period 
when it's you've got this window when children are so susceptible and so able to absorb things and if they don't get that preschools environment they don't play they don't have structured play you really lose a lot in cognition did the pandemic closures spark any changes in what schools were teaching and how they taught it kind of aside from the technology question um, the, the content of what they were teaching did that change i think not enough i think the main challenge with schools reopening and some countries have done this, but we need to do more of it, is a recognition that you can't just keep following the curriculum. It's less about what we're teaching and is it the right level for the child. So as I say, if you're third, you're in third grade, but you, did, you didn't get first and second grade, we can't just continue on with third grade. We have to go back and do some of first and second grade. The countries that have done this well, responded to the pandemic well, have said, well, let's look at where, where children are, let's measure where they are, and let's adapt to that, and let's teach based on where they are now, what they know now. Not quite throughout the curriculum, but for at least for a little bit, yes, let's focus on where, what children know, what they don't know. And that is something that we should be doing more generally. It's something that we have tested in different contexts, uh, multiple times, and focusing teaching on where children actually are rather than where you hope they are is a better way to teach in general. How are those countries who are doing it right, how are they going about that? Because uh, as you note, I mean, that's basically taking it away from whatever the standard curriculum is, and that has to be fairly labor-intensive, effort-intensive. Where it is happening the way you would like to see it, how is it happening? Yeah, so you've got places like um, Kenya and Ethiopia have done testing of where children are. And, you know, Kenya has some good examples of then saying, we'll do catch-up classes. So they've recognized what things people don't know. And then they've done specific catch-up classes where they provide additional lessons targeted not at the grade level but at the level at which children are to try and catch up some of the material that people haven't learnt. Other places do it through you know special summer camps or they've done some technology that to try and keep people learning through when schools are closed. So it's sort of recognizing the problem and setting some time aside specifically to go over the things that aren't in this year's curriculum, but where you were meant to have covered in previous times and that children don't know. So in the recommended solutions in this report, uh, I, yeah. I think you could argue the primary one is to prioritize keeping schools open in any yes. future pandemics. And, and, and you talk about, you know, schools being the last closed and the first back open. It would seem the list of things that have to happen to make that possible would be very, very long. Where does it start? So there's a lot that you can do to make schools safer. But I actually think the list of things is not so long. Okay. Because we didn't prioritize schools. We kept, you know, bars open and not schools. Mm. And that's because people thought, well, there's an economic cost to closing restaurants. There's a much, much, much bigger economic cost to closing schools. And if we recognize that, when we say prioritize, we mean 
close other things first, because this is the biggest economic cost, actually. So if we're going to keep anything open, I mean, yes, we have to feed, we have to keep hospitals open, we have to get food flowing. But after that, it's schools, because that's the biggest economic cost that you're going to bear as a society in future. It's not just the welfare of the children, even that just purely on the economic cost, this is way up there as one of the biggest sectors. So that's relatively simple. Now, obviously, people worry about children, you know, being vectors of spreading the disease. Yeah. So how do you convince teachers <laughs> to go back to the classroom? So obviously, we prioritize vaccines. Which weren't available we until 10 months into the pandemic. Yeah. But schools were closed long after vaccines were available. Masking proved pretty effective in schools. Filters proved pretty effective in schools. If we're talking about low and middle income countries, they a lot of schools don't have windows. Like the the ventilation is actually extremely good in a lot of schools in low and middle income countries. They were not going to be vectors of disease in the way that bars and restaurants were. So the evidence suggests that if you do some of these basic things of good ventilation, it doesn't just mean filters, it just could mean open windows and masking and vaccinating teachers, we actually had pretty low levels of spread. And where we did have spread, it was mainly teacher to teacher. Mm. It wasn't students to teachers. So, you know, if you have to cut anything, cut out the teachers' meetings, <laughs> but keep the teachers talking to the kids. There was very little spread there, actually. I think teachers would be on board with cutting down on meetings, just generally. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um how are schools globally doing in terms of assessing the pandemic's impact on their students' learning? Is it possible to kind of give schools a grade? Yeah, I would say B minus mm. in terms of assessing where they are. We're getting more countries doing it, but a lot of countries haven't yet done it. And even very few have changed what they're doing as a result of the pandemic. So, yeah, I B minus is maybe a generous grade. Given that there are, are and were so many variants here, not just by nation, but even by state, by municipality, is it possible to figure out what the standard should be coming out of COVID, possibly going into the next pandemic? Did anybody do it just right? So some parts of Europe hardly close their schools at all. Parts of Northern Europe, Scandinavia, Denmark, sorry, the Netherlands, had very, very limited school closures, and they really prioritized schools. Now, Sweden obviously, you know, kept lots of things going, but um, in other places, schools were really given the priority. That's our top recommendation. Now, obviously, hopefully we're not going to get a new pandemic immediately, but in other work, I've shown that actually it's you know, quite likely that we're going to get pandemic. We should be preparing for them. And also we're going to get other variants. I mean, we will get other variants. So I think it's still very relevant to think about what you do with next variants. So in terms of grading of who's doing what, I, the top grades go to those who did it right for the most important thing, which is uh, keeping the schools open. And, and there definitely were were countries who really prioritize that and close them for very short periods. Rachel, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks. 
Pie is a production of the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics at the University of Chicago. If you'd like to keep in touch with the latest economic research from the University of Chicago, you can visit bfi.uchicago.edu slash subscribe. And you can sign up for our newsletter there as well. And of course, you can subscribe to The Pie on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Our theme music was composed by Story Mechanics, production assistance from the BFI communications team. I'm Tess Viglin, your host and executive producer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. 